do gymnastics brown girls do writing brown girls do film brown girls do fundraising brown girls do welcome back to the brown girls do podcast this is amber cabral and we are on episode nine so today we are going to be talking about diverse representation in the arts which you all know is a cause that is very dear to our hearts over here at Brown Girls Do. And it's also very timely. We just had the Oscars on television last night. It was a good Oscars for diversity. Um, Definitely saw some gender diversity, saw some people of color winning awards that in the past were not given to people of color. And so it's really good to be able to be a part of seeing those types of changes take place. And our guest today is a part of that movement. So Without further ado, we're going to go ahead and jump into the episode. My name is Kadi Kamakate, and I'm a producer. I do narrative and branded projects. So a producer for stage, film? Yeah, so I do only film media. So I only do anything that's recorded on camera. I don't do stage work. I used to do radio. I don't do radio anymore. And for my nine to five, I produce digital commercials things you'll see on YouTube or Amazon or anything on the web. And then for a freelance career, I've only done short form content so far, as far as like short films, music videos, PSAs, a web series, but I definitely have aspirations to do feature films. Oh, wow. So how did you get into recording video? Most people say, oh, I started out as an actress or I was in film. I mean, I was on stage and then, you know, kind of, yeah. how did this happen? Like you seem to be completely digital. So tell us more about that. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I think it's honestly the time in which I started my career. Everything moved to streaming about like 10 or so years ago when Hulu popped up and Netflix and all these things, all these mediums are coming up because for quite a bit, Netflix was just DVDs. And the next thing you know, there's this Netflix streaming. So I think in an interesting way, my career has been carrying along as long as this as the times are changing. But I've always wanted to do film. Since I was a child, I always wanted to do film. I've had thoughts of being an actress at one point, thoughts of being a director at some point, but it was in film school that I really realized that like my skill set was more, I shouldn't say more suited. I think there's always opportunities to grow as I get older, but was definitely suited to behind the camera. I was also very sensitive and self-conscious about ever being in front of the camera. And I felt like my merit and the longevity of my career would definitely be like safe if I was behind a camera. Oh my. And so, you know, you just see so many people that are actresses and have a good five years and that's it. But you don't, producers have 30, 40, 50, you know, like can be for forever and be respected and not be famous. And all these things are very important to me. And I just fell in love with the medium of film and what it could do and how it inspired me as a child. And it felt like you didn't have Obviously, we know this to not be the case, but as a child, I felt like you didn't have rules. 
you could put anything in anything you wanted and anything could come true with this medium. And that's very much the case. But we also know like real day-to-day life, there's it's a very problematic industry. Right. <laughs> you can't do absolutely anything you want. That's in part why I'm still in it and trying to push that limit. But as I started working in, you know, out of film school, working on projects, and I stumbled into advertising as a career. At first I was producing events. From then, one of the kind of things you start doing is working on smaller mediums before you do broadcast television. So I was doing radio and I was doing digital stuff and kind of owned in on that digital niche more or less. So when I had the opportunity to work at my current job at Portal A, it just was an easy fit. Um, There's just such a vast need for content on the web that it's just kind of an easy way to fill that and produce full time, which is I want to preface that I've never actually freelance produced. There's many people that are freelance producers and just jump jobs from jobs. I've just been fortunate to find full-time producing work, which is kind of rare. Mm. So you said something interesting about wanting to be respected and not be famous. Can you elaborate on that? Like I formulated my own assumptions (laughs) when you said it, but I I want to hear you talk a little Um, bit more about what you mean by being respected for your work and not having to be famous. Like say more about that. Yeah, I'm a very, and I noticed this very early in my life, I'm a very like work proud person. I love working hard. I worked a double shift on like my 16th birthday. Like I just love working hard and having integrity in that, like being a good worker was something that was like very important to me. Whereas the like aspirational results or like thoughts of wanting fame or attention for it has never been something that I've been comfortable with. And I also feel like doesn't necessarily correlate to you being good at what you do. You know, fame is not necessarily like a link to you being good at what you're doing, helping other people. It's just infamy, right? You can do something crazy and become famous for it. Or obviously you can do something great and become famous for it. And it's also very fleeting. And I think people that base their sense of worth on something that's not sustainable, it's just very damaging. You know, I think once you know you want to work in an industry at a very early age, you have the time to kind of observe people's careers and people's successes and people's pitfalls. And it was something that I knew I wanted to steer away from. I'm much more comfortable having people know my name and know my work and know my integrity on a very like micro level than people know of me and like not know me or not what I stand for. You know, obviously we all love recognition and we all love to be told like, good job, but like, I want to be able to like afford to shop at Whole Foods and not have like paparazzi. <laughs> like, like that's my goal. Like I want to be able to like be successful and be respected by like my peers, but not have that invasion of like privacy or be famous because there's so many things people attach to your name when you're famous mm-hmm. that are not you, you know, and that's like a very frightening space yeah. and place for me. So I think there's something to be said about wanting your privacy. And I always think that people who are interested in widely shared mediums wanting their privacy is very Mm -hmm. interesting because, you know, ultimately (laughs) you probably know more than most of us that you get to control your narrative. Like you shape Mm -hmm. and form what people think about you, what they read about you. I mean, you have a lot more of that in your hand. And of course, the larger you get, there'll be more opportunity for assumption, but you really grasp the importance and the value of knowing and owning your story. So just kind of keeping that in mind, because it sounds like that's something that is important to you. 
What advice would you give someone that is interested in the mm-hmm. film industry, but isn't really sure, you know, where they want to be? And just to give you a little bit of context, like I have a few really close friends that are, you know, in the film industry. A couple have been on Brown Girls as well on the podcast. You know, even mm-hmm. a couple guys like I, you know, I have a guy friend that uh, did lighting and then he transitioned from lighting to like sound. And then, you know, he's kind of done this hopping around, but it, it seemed to be a struggle to figure out like, where do I sit in this industry, even though I know I like this space? What advice would you give somebody to try to figure that out? If you're starting out, I think number one thing is be curious. I think one of the things I've learned more was I was such on a like straightforward track that I didn't get as many experiences. And now having to branch out a bit more that I I don't think I'm even mid-career yet, but a bit later than I would like. So I would say absolutely be curious. Don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to commit. And don't be afraid to be good at something, even if you didn't expect to be good at. You know, I think some people often stumble into what they are doing, uh, as opposed to having a clear idea that I want to be a costume designer. No, they end up styling. And the next thing you know, they're styling a music video. And then that turns to a film. And and it grows like be very open and curious about that process and that growth. But I think you have to stick to like very clear principles as to how you want to be perceived and thought of in the industry, because it is like everybody tells you this, like Hollywood is who you know. And there's a very like clear understanding as to that why, like, you know, time is money. You want people on your team that are respecting of that and that can deliver and execute. And you often get to meet those people on set. If you join on set and you're late or you're not prepared, like that is it. Like I'm never hiring you again. It's not even a conversation. It's not anything that we're going to like, I mean, obviously we can discuss about it if you want, but you showed up unprepared. You showed up late. You didn't ask the questions you needed to like, I'm sorry, that's it. And so be very mindful that of course we can make mistakes. Of course we can grow, but like you need to have a very clear objective of like how you want to be reflected in the industry, not necessarily what you want to do is your end goal because you can start out and do lighting and decide like, I actually just want to direct. But if I've worked with you as a DP and you are super creative and have this like awesome, like, you know, studied approach to it, I'm more willing to take a chance with you as a director than somebody who never had any like ethics or like respect or like understanding for their craft as it was previous. So I think that's really important. I honestly think that applies to everything, you know, like you want, and maybe this is because that's what I value, but you want to be a good team player. You know, you want to be an asset to the team because all, you know, my work always consists of working with tons and tons of people. But yeah, if you get a bad reputation really early on, like you absolutely have to switch complete Mm -hmm. circles because word travels really fast. And your career can be done in a second because obviously, you know, they'll have that experience with me personally, but I have a network that I talk to and I yeah. would be very swift to tell them like, don't ever hire this person. And then they have a network that they talk to. And next thing you know, you know, you're up for all these jobs and you're not getting a job. It's mm-hmm. just everybody knows you're like, crap at your work. You know, like everybody knows you like didn't show prepare. That's a thing. Right. You know, we deal with money. Like you can't be shady with that stuff. And if you are like, that's a wrap for you. So I definitely feel like don't limit yourself, you know, as far as like what craft you want to fall into and what you want to grow into, but definitely have a core understanding of like the person you want to be as you're engaging with this endeavor. So it sounds like there's a balance of like, be curious, but still be like, retain your integrity. So if you've decided you're curious in this space, still do the best job you can, even if you're like, 
this is not what I want to do. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because people are counting on you. Like, you know, I don't need to get a phone call the night before a shoot that like, you don't think you're up for this. Like you should have told me that two weeks ago. Right. That puts me in a situation that's way more damaging as far as like your reputation and the overall success of the shoot than it would have been if you don't two years ago. I even learned that by doing that to somebody, you know, it came, I got a full-time job in the midst of, I was freelancing for somebody and it was a project that I wasn't extremely passionate about, but you know, I thought I had given them enough lead time and I think I did, but it is neither here nor there anymore, but they really let me know that I put them in a bind and I didn't have a replacement for them because it was a free job. So like I couldn't find anybody to, you know, to, to sign up for yeah. it. You know, it humbled me in that moment. I was like, I'll never do that again to anybody. Like, I'll just follow through and I'll do the best that I can. And so like, yeah, you can take a job as a makeup artist and you've only played around with like makeup for a couple times with your friends, but you better show up with a kit. You better ask for like test sessions if you need it. You better deliver on that look. Cause when they say like, you know, it's time to bring no actors on set, you can't just say like, oh, I tried. <laughs> like that doesn't cut it. It doesn't cut it. So I think it's a big thing about knowing yourself. And I think sometimes as women, and I've been guilty of that, is feeling I need to be like a thousand percent prepared before I commit to anything. Yeah. And I think that that's damaging. I think that's not necessarily helpful. But I do think you need to have a sense of like delivering and committing and just saying, I've committed to this. I'm going to deliver to the best of my ability. And then I will never book a job as a makeup artist ever again, because that is not mm-hmm. my thing. That's fine. But just show up and do the work and be prepared and be the best at it. Absolutely. You mentioned earlier that you're really invested in having a career with a long tail. Like you want to be able to, you know, not necessarily be the actress of the moment, but have longevity in your film career. Can you talk about that? Like, what do you mean by longevity? Like, we, you know, you hear all the time that young people change their minds all the time and that they shift, you know, their career perspective, all that stuff. And so they don't stick with anything. So it's just interesting for you to say, listen, I want to have longevity. I think... Whereas we're no longer in a day and day age of like being in a company for 10, 15, 20 years, I think it was always very important for me to have something sustainable. When you come from somebody who has basically left everything to start a better life, you know, you just kind of have the stakes of like, whatever you do, even if I'm going to be in the arts, like I need to be good at it and I need to make it like last. You know, I don't necessarily, even though I went, I pursued a career in the arts, I never felt that I had the luxury to not make a living from it. And that's in part why I think I definitely pushed to producing because again, there's a longevity in that there's a sustainability in it. People need a producer for every project. It's not like you don't need one. So I definitely think that helped me push into that. And again, yeah, like you have this kind of like history of like working hard and being a bit more responsible than I think. And I don't want to say that because I think everybody, depending on like their experiences still has, everybody has a drive and the responsibility that they have. But I definitely think it's a kind of a layer into your childhood, whether your parents push it on you or not, you just kind of observe that you see the sacrifices that were made and you don't take that lightly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of the stereotypes. I mean, it's absolutely, it's a stereotype that if you are an immigrant or a child of an immigrant, you need to go into a professional career. And then if you go into an artsy career, then you better make sure that it's super stable. And so that's part of the reason why it's so interesting that so many of the people that we have spoken to have had, you know, somewhat non-traditional career paths, but 
have been the children of immigrants. I mean, we've we've had teachers, but they've been some mm-hmm. really phenomenal teachers, right? We've had mm-hmm. we had a woman that's a CEO, but there again, I mean, really a phenomenal person and a, a really mm-hmm. interesting and engaging one. But this theme of I'm an immigrant or my parents were immigrants and that has shaped my identity mm-hmm. and the way that I see work is definitely a common thread. Absolutely. And to add a note, my parents are a bit older. And so I think they are also definitely from the generation of like, you just work, you know, like you don't complain, you show up every day, you get your paycheck, you go home and then like have your life. So I think I definitely also had that extra layer of just, you know, like even things like negotiating for a raise. My mom was like, oh my God, do not stir the pot there. Like just take that offer and just show up to work tomorrow. And I had to be like, no, you know, and that was scary for her Mm -hmm. to even have me challenge the status quo that she often felt like she could not challenge in her career. And she was very proud. But I remember those initial conversations. She was just like, oh, my God, my daughter's just going to get like the offer is going to be rescinded and she's going to move back in with me and it's going to be terrible. Yeah, I mean, I think that's interesting, too to talk about like there's something to be said about still living your life despite the fear of those around you Mm -hmm. Uh, especially when they're your parents like I mean it takes a very special type of gumption to have everybody around you like oh you shouldn't do that you know and you're like and you do yeah you do it yep yeah again I think it's a big not necessarily generational thing. It's an ideological shift. And I think also being women and women of color and like claiming that we deserve things and that we're going to go for it, I think is very radical, despite people knowing that it's deserving and it's necessary. I think when people really do it and they see people do it, they're almost, yeah, they're holding their breath. Like, mm-hmm. oh my God, this is going to go terribly wrong. And then you come out. And I think that's sometimes when you find resentment in the workplace or in your life where you find a bit of jealousy, it's like people have not offered themselves the ability to do that. And when they haven't even given themselves permission to do that. And when they see you succeed in it, it's like almost a pain that they're living about like what they've limited yeah. themselves to do as opposed to necessarily taking away from what you're experiencing. And I think I was blessed with parents that also never told me not to do film. I just had the responsibility of being mm-hmm. successful at it. Uh, my father wanted to do film when he was younger and was writing scripts, but he, that was almost like not a real possibility for him. You know, he had much different weight and much different responsibilities he had to carry. Being the only child of his family to receive an education and have the opportunity to come and study in the States and all that stuff. He actually went back, my parents went back to Ivory Coast and stayed there for 20 years. And I was born there and then moved here. And so there was just a lot of cultural like importance about being successful, but they never restricted me as to what I was going to do with that. And for, you know, to be honest, I think they're very non-traditional in the sense that if I was to say, oh, by the way, I just want to quit everything, move back home and just start something new, like they would be a little like shocked, but Mm -hmm. they wouldn't be unsupportive, which I think is different. I just think I've instilled internally the sense of like, needing to be independent and also in part because I want to be able to be in a position to yeah. take care of them at some point. And I think that might be kind of yeah. an immigrant So in terms of success, place. in terms of what you are doing to kind of build your reputation and establish longevity and mm-hmm. create your or expand your identity as a producer, what are you working on now? I know you have some pretty interesting news to share. So Yeah. So a project that's been a baby of mine is Lamert Park. And that is a digital series that uh, me and two friends, Davida Scarlett and Mel Jones, created about maybe four or five years ago. That was based off Mel's life living in a Lamert Park, which is 
a neighborhood in South LA, predominantly Black neighborhood, very arts and activism driven. And it's this very unique gem that so many people in LA, especially non-people of color, don't even know about. They drive through or whatnot. But now it's undergoing gentrification. Um, So now it's becoming a very like hot topic of conversation. But what we really wanted to do was highlight the culture that was there and also highlight women like us that were just existing and living and loving and pursuing their careers. So the series centers around three women that live together in a house in Limerick Park, three best friends. One of them's married and her husband also lives in the house. So that causes Mm. um, some conflict there. But yes, we conceived it about like four or five years ago, went through so many different like, you know, drafts and processes. We're all working women. So like finding the time to do that in between everything else. And we shot it a year or so ago and got into Sundance this year, Sundance. So we premiered it at Sundance, which was obviously a big professional goal for me. Absolutely. Congratulations on that. Thank you. It's something that I knew would have to be in my career path. Like, you know, every filmmaker, I think, wants to like have something at Sundance, but I did not expect it to be there this soon. I expected for like it to be in the next like five or something years and to be a major project. So the fact that it's with this kind of breakthrough uh, project that Indie Episodic, it's their first time having this category. And the fact that we're in this inaugural group. It's thrilling. It's just really thrilling, really exciting, really rewarding, especially having worked on something for so long and finally seeing it have the like success that it's so deserving of. So very, very excited about that. That is super awesome. So Lamert Park, if I want to watch it, what do I need to do? So right now it is not available in the World Wide Web. We are definitely having the meetings and having the conversations to make sure that it happens. But we are also working on pitching for a television yeah, and hoping that's great. that it become a TV show. And to kind of give people like a short like description of it, it's basically like Sex in the City, but for like Black millennial women. Oh, wow. Um, that's awesome. South LA. So it's very sex forward and sex positive, um, deals with a lot of LGBTQ issues, or at least puts that in the framework of like Black womanhood. Um, deals with young marriages and relationships of that sort and drugs and like all that kind of stuff. Things that I think we have personally or have our friends have experienced but have never been showcased in the web in like an interesting and kind of relatable way. We definitely wanted these women to feel like the best friends we either have or want to have, Mm -hmm. but not in a like, I'll never meet this woman in that like, oh, this is my girlfriend or this is the girl that I went to high school with, but now she's on a TV show. So that was super important. So I have a couple questions, diversity specific. One is how did you guys address gentrification? You know, in all neighborhoods of color right now, we're all, I mean, it's a hot topic of conversation because it is, I mean, it's happening very rapidly. I'm originally from Detroit yeah. and I've gone yeah. home and downtown Detroit looks like, I mean, I, this is not the place I grew up. It's not my childhood at all. Yeah. And that in some ways yeah. it's very shocking and, and offensive and abrupt. And I mean, lots of emotions, even though there's also a part of you that's like, hey, things are better, right? And so do you talk about that at all in the web series, especially since you're dealing with an area that's going through that? Yeah, so we do address it, um, not as overtly as we initially thought we okay. would address it, because in part, um, we wanted to have the story of the girls be prevalent, but we definitely address it in the context of like, this is Lemur Park, this is literally, we show a map and draw it out, like, this is where it is, this is what's going on, and don't tell your friends about it, because we don't want them to be here. <laughs> literally is what we say, we say in the series. 
And I think for us, it's something that we really want to grow on and talk more about and be more poignant about it because there's so many issues because something we also recognize in conversations like we are also as like upwardly mobile black millennials. Absolutely. And I recognize that super quick. The apartment that I moved in, like the rent we're paying is significantly higher than anybody else on my block. And that set the trend for every other apartment that's Mm -hmm. being opened up. And I recognize that like, yo, I'm a black woman and I'm starting this on my block. Like, let's not be ignorant of that. Right. But am I shifting the cultural significance or am I shifting the cultural thing, you know, like identity of the neighborhood? Probably not as much as some like upwardly mobile, like white couple or Mm -hmm. man or whatever that comes into the neighborhood. So also like addressing the nuances of that and like having that mirror that like, it's not just like a white people problem. (laughs) Like we have those influences in these neighborhoods and like, how do we find that balance with that as well? Yeah. What's the appropriate way to, to use it so that you do retain the integrity and culture yeah. that a neighborhood has? Like, Because I do think that when you have people of color in a neighborhood that are more upwardly mobile, to use your words, mm-hmm. there's a, a different responsibility mm-hmm. because they have an awareness that someone who is not diverse, you know, is not going to have. Exactly. And so your sense of accountability should be different. And I, I do think we don't do the best job at we kind of skirt that sometimes, you I know, and do. so I think it's easier because it's it's much more complicated, I think, for that conversation. Didn't you just yeah. say like, didn't you point the finger at the other yeah. forms of gentrification? But exactly. you're absolutely right. Like we cognizantly like I shop black, like, you know, like all these things, like I use the local neighborhood stores, like I'm not driving out necessarily go to Whole Foods. I can't afford that. But like, you know, <laughs> I'm going to the neighborhood bodega. Like I'm talking to my neighbors. Like we are all kind of forming that community. That doesn't necessarily happen when you do have a neighborhood, that, like a neighbor that walks in that's white that doesn't feel comfortable having mm-hmm. those kinds of bonds and holding each other as a community. And so I like to think that my form of gentrification is a bit better. But in a way, I, I just recognize that I am complicit, you know, that we are complicit in that as well. But, you know, it's yeah. that struggle. Like, you do want neighborhoods to have resources available to its people there. It's just really shitty that it has to come at a price of displacing people, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't. It, I mean, there is a way to do it responsibly, exactly. but we have not. Yeah, we have not done a very good job as a as a nation. Uh, you know, I can't even say yeah. it as a culture. It's it's as a nation. As a nation. Um, being thoughtful about people who cannot afford to live these really high end lifestyles, but they mm-hmm. are actually the keepers of the culture, the ones that bring it and mm-hmm. grow it and foster it and make it all nice and interesting for those of yeah. us who want to be there. So yeah, there, there's yeah. a lot, I have a lot to say about that, but. No, so true. And it's definitely something we want to explore at a greater level in the series, especially if we have the opportunity to make it a TV series and just have the time to kind of dive into those like nuggets there. So tell me about Sundance. What was the experience being, I mean, a woman of color, a woman, and then a woman of color at Sundance, brand new category. I mean, who were the people that were in that category with you? Like, let's, let's talk about what did that look like? Yeah. So we screened with another team and they was a white, they were, you know, it was like, it was a white team. That sounded awkward. (laughs) No, there were, there were uh, two filmmakers and they had another series. And, you know, the trippy thing that happened is we got, we were fortunate to have a Hollywood report review that was like super great on our project but it came at the expense of them kind of like bashing this other project Mm. which is always uncomfortable because we screened twice and the next day we had to see them and they were so gracious and so nice and they had like an amazing project too it just was different like it dealt with relationships but it was in a different light so it was kind of radical and empowering to just have this like such a 
grand display of like black womanhood and sexuality on the big screen. Like, first of all, seeing your content on the big screen after editing it and watching it through like your computer is kind of like, that's the moment yeah. for me. Yeah. You know? Like this is like, I'm with the big dogs now. But, you know, you're navigating like Suntance, you know, they have a lot of efforts, a lot of diversity initiatives, but it's a predominantly white and male event, yeah. period. Yeah. So you're walking into the spaces and the minute you're walking in, you stick out. You and, you know, walking with my and just talking about our project and being very like, this is a show about like young black millennials that talks about like, you know, sex and relationships and just people just kind of pause. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, where's Lamert Park or Lemert Park or like however, you know, people pronounce it or butcher it. So it was just a very like, we're very in your face about it, but not on a brash, like not in a forceful way. It's just, that's just the project that we're there for. And that's what we're passionate about. And this is who we are. So if we're having that conversation, we're talking about that. We're not skirting around about it. But yeah, it's like we had the opportunity to watch it with like more of our friends and like the jokes hit a little bit better and the laughs are a little bit yeah. more plentiful. And when you're watching with like more of a mixed audience, you know, there's a little bit of like some subtleties that go over people's head. But like, tell you not, like after two of the screening, these older white women came to us and were just like, this is awesome. Thank you. And I think because in part, we are definitely talking about sexuality in a very like different light. We talk about yoni eggs a lot and those kinds of things. And these women that, you know, again, mm-hmm. not young black women, <laughs> were identifying with these characters more on their like sexual awakening that some of these characters have and just happy to see women on the screen having that. Like that's what they were excited about. And that was like very cool because obviously I want to make content that impacts everybody, obviously through a certain lens because that's the lens that I see the world in. But I don't want it to be like secular to just my community. I want everybody else to see it and be impacted by it. So that was a very nice thing to see that other people, different age groups, different races were like connecting to it. But yeah, you know, I can't tell you how many parties we walked into and it was just, there was one particular party that was kind of this private event and I wish I could say who the brand was about. I can't, but like literally we walked in there and the like wall of white privilege just like, yes. (laughs) And I was like, you know, okay. And then I had to just like catch my breath, you know, and just be like, okay, I'm about to eat this, you know, food from this private chef. Thank you very much. I'm about to drink your liquor. Thank you very much. And I'm about to talk to you about my project and we're going to be good. We're going to do this. You know, I'm very intimidated by those situations more so because I think I, not because of like race or anything. It's more because of like, I'm so young in this game. Like we're all so like young and new in this game. So just getting that, like, I belong here that kind of weight is more what I think I get a little intimidated by as opposed to saying, you know, like, you know, I don't know. It's just, I guess maybe it's that imposter. I was literally, I was literally going to say that. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's that, you know, feeling like you deserve that seat at the table and just, and and then, you know, having that fear and then saying like, it doesn't matter if there's a seat there, I'm taking it. I think to some degree, some of what you're describing also is probably amplified by your content. Because I mean, oh, absolutely. how often do you get to be a woman of diverse background in a room that gives you a space to talk about things that are very unique to being a woman of diverse background? Like that's, exactly. you know, that's a very difficult, in some cases, position to be in because, you know, you want to talk about your project, you want to celebrate it, it's valuable. It's, I mean, made it to Sunday. And so that in and of itself speaks volumes about what the project has to contribute. But at the mm-hmm. same time, it's kind of like the subject matter that you mostly probably only really talk about with people that look like you, you know? And so. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it's weird, you know, it's like, and 
Another note is like, um, I'm biracial too. My mom's white. And it's very interesting because I have these conversations with her in a very frank and honest setting. And obviously she's my mother. So like, there's no uncomfortableness for it. But it's interesting, like, I even have that. But yet when I'm speaking to a predominantly white crowd, there's like this weird, like, oh, my God, I'm about to like rip this Band-Aid from them, you know, but yet I have practice doing it all (laughs) all the time and not being comfortable with it. But you're right. It's like it's the content and it's also who we are. So it was a very like humbling experience to just as a filmmaker, be there, have my work there. But it was also kind of a reminder of like the work that we still have Mm -hmm. to do. And much so because I think, you know, when we were there, there aren't just a lot of brown young people yeah. there, <laughs> yeah. period. You know, like, even if there are some women there, like, these broads are like, and I'm not trying to be ageist, but these broads are like 60 plus, there's a completely different generation. Their struggle is still very much just as them being women as a filmmaker and typically being white women, and you know, filmmakers. And it's not this... I feel like our struggle is just very different and very layered Mm -hmm. and very nuanced. And so they're having certain conversations about these things. And I'm like, yeah, but like, you know, I'm still not even offered that invite or offered that meeting because not only am I a woman, I'm also black. So like, I don't feel like sometimes when we're having these conversations about inclusion, like even our messages and our goals are necessarily like on the same plate. So that's, and I'm sure that's, you, you know, we, yeah, we I'm sure, yeah, I was gonna say, I'm sure you're not going to solve that in one, you know, one film. Like yes. it's, yeah, no, that's, no. that's an ongoing dialogue no. for sure. So yeah, and holding others accountable too. I think that's something I realize is not everybody is down Correct. to be held accountable. Even in my group, even in our like young filmmaker group, like everybody's kind of like, oh, I want to make it. I want to make it. And sometimes I got to, because I'm very much, I want to make it yeah. like on my terms and not on somebody else's terms. So I'll definitely hold people accountable. Well, look, keep holding people accountable. We need that. Is there anything coming? I mean, I know you're working on this web series and trying to move it to television. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that we can kind of keep an eye out for you? Like, what do you have in your pocket that's brewing that you're comfortable sharing? You know, right now, this year, I'm taking kind of a different approach. I don't have anything immediate. I'm reading a lot of scripts right now. I'm looking to really sink my teeth in a feature project. I don't have anything on the horizon right now. I'm just kind of reading scripts that are super aligned. Obviously, there's a lot out there, but making sure that's something that I have bandwidth, time for, and the content is on point. But I also am stepping back to be a bit more creative on my end. So I'm looking forward to actually writing this year, which is something I haven't done. I haven't kind of allowed myself to do. So I don't know what form that's going to take. I'm thinking it could be in TV or in feature space or even a short space, but I'm looking to step back and actually be a bit more creative and introspective kind of in my art a bit. So I don't have anything to necessarily dish out right now, but I'm just kind of looking forward to that creative process. Like I said, we usually end with brown girls. Brown girls are fearless. Yeah, you have to be fearless in all day and age, but... You have to be fearless in pursuing your passion and in pursuing your goals to succeed. You have to be completely fearless. First, we would like to thank Kati for being committed to being a part of diversifying stories that brown girls can relate to. We also want to thank Lemon Drop Media, and we encourage you to listen to some of the other podcasts on Lemon Drop Network. In fact, you can hear Kati on Short and Sweet, along with her co-host, Brooke, as they talk about the ups and downs of adulting. See you guys in a couple weeks for our final episode of this season. Bye.